Hello, I'm Martin. And I'm Angelina. And this is the CX Cast. Welcome back to the CX Cast. Today I am joined, as ever, by Angelina. Hello. And we have a special guest, uh, AJ Joplin, who is a senior analyst at Forrester and is going to talk to us about how to facilitate a great workshop, which I love because we're going to get super hands-on, super practical, learn a skill, get better at doing something. We've all run a workshop and we've all tanked it and we've all gone, oh my God, how do I do better? So AJ, tell me about your qualifications for teaching us how to become better at facilitating workshops. Sure. It's a valid question. So before coming to Forrester, I've worked at a lot of large enterprises, and I started developing this skill of facilitation way back in the day. I could bore you with like details even back into high school where I ran my parliamentary procedure team, <laughs> which is a nerd fact for everybody listening. But through work experience is when that's when I really started to realize the need for facilitation. And then when I began working at IBM as a part of the core team for IBM design, building out IBM design running countless numbers of workshops and individual facilitated sessions with teams. That's when I really started to develop this skill for facilitation. As we were trying to scale design thinking at IBM, we started to realize that becoming a good facilitator is almost more important than learning design thinking. And the reason for that is because there are a lot of similarities when it comes to helping teams diverge and converge on ideas. That is what we do in design thinking. It's what we do in facilitation. And they're not necessarily one and the same, but the overlap of the skills are pretty intense. And then after IBM, I moved to USAA where I helped build out the human-centered design practice there. And again, a lot of facilitation, a lot of understanding how people work and uh, what the optimal conditions are for that. So I have a lot of just on the ground hours when it comes to facilitation. And then, of course, reading books and building workshops and agendas and trying to figure out the dynamics of humans and what happens when they come together and when they come together well. I've been doing that for a while now. (laughs) And I have to say, I really love it. What is it about uh, this drive towards human-centered design and implementing these processes and new collaboration strategies that makes the workshop a thing? Like, Mm -hmm. is it just a fancy term for a meeting with activities or is there something different about (laughs) workshops where we've kind of created this new tool in our toolkit? Yeah, you know, I think the workshop terminology has been around for a a long time and we kind of use it like a verb as well as an event. (laughs) let's workshop that idea. And typically what that means is like, let's come together with some intentionality or some intensity around solving a defined problem. The problem is with workshops, a lot of the times the scope of the workshop isn't well-defined, the inputs to the workshop are not well-defined. And so people can really struggle to get things done. And so it makes workshops, it kind of gives them a bad rap, I guess you could say, because people don't know how to design them well. But I think the energy around wanting to have a workshop is because people envision themselves finally being able to overcome a challenge that's been looming over them for a while. But, you know, a workshop is just a single touch point in a work stream. And maybe we put too much onus on the value of a workshop because we're resting a lot of our hopes and dreams on finally being able to accomplish something. It can be a wonderful, amazing thing, but it plays a role in a larger context that I think is important to understand. So I think that's why people get so excited about them. 
So when we were talking about topics for this podcast, we obviously you came up with this idea of facilitating workshops, but like, what, why now? Have you just been in a load of bad ones or are you seeing a, a need that people need to get better at this? I definitely see a need um, in every company I'm in, right? Because people have problems they want to solve. And if we give them the opportunity to create an event where that can happen, then they can overcome that hurdle, much like I was just explaining, like, we hope that we can get this thing finally conquered. And it's true. But it's a bit of a mystery as to how you can design those things well. And I would say even at Forrester, you have a lot of folks here who've been facilitating for a long time. And even though you have that time in a skill, it doesn't mean that you can't learn something. It doesn't mean that you can't learn from other people, right? And that's the beautiful thing about facilitation. And every company I've been in, almost immediately we see that there's a need for this sharing and this giving and taking to learn more skills, to be able to troubleshoot certain problems. And part of that's because becoming a facilitator is to become a master of understanding human behavior, which is always dynamic, always shifting, always changing, right? So people want to share stories and ideas for not just techniques, but also understanding how they might organize things for an optimal output. So for me, I guess that's why I'm so excited about facilitation and doing more of it at Forrester, but also sharing more with my peers. I think that's really important. If you want to get better yourself, you have to want to make other people better at this as well. Okay, so let's take it from the beginning. I have an objective. I need to bring stakeholders together, get some buy-in, get them to co-create with me. When planning a workshop, what is the best way to ensure it's going to be a successful experience? So I guess I would start with asking, why do you think you need a workshop, right? <laughs> it, it's because you're hoping to accomplish something. Then we very quickly ask, well, why can't we do that in the regular course of our work? All right. So we can start to talk about scope. We can start to define the problem that we're hoping to go after. And in doing that, we're going to also start to talk about like what needs to happen before that workshop? What needs to happen even after that workshop? So we're talking about inputs, outputs, setting expectations, deciding how long the workshop should be, deciding who should be there. A lot of times we conduct these workshops and the right people aren't in the room and a lot of decisions get made. And then after the workshop, you have one group of people who are like, we figured this thing out. And then a bunch of other people who are like, uh, no, you didn't because we weren't there. <laughs> and a phrase I've used a lot in the course of my work and especially a lot lately, which may maybe why the stars are aligning to talk about this facilitation topic more is I share the term dynamite people with a lot of clients and internal folks that I speak with. Dynamite people can have two sides, right? They can either be amazing people that make things really work, or they can be people who happily detonate bombs and blow everything up if they weren't involved, <laughs> right? We've all worked with those people. And isn't it interesting that if we just would have included them, that they would have been the former, not the latter type of dynamite person. They have knowledge. They have a lot of times passion around solving a certain problem. So we need to make sure the right people are in the room. So we're going to ask a lot of questions before we even get to the event of planning a workshop to make sure that it's scoped and planned correctly for the optimal output, right? So this workshop you want to plan, Angelina, I would probably ask you a lot of questions like that. And I would also say, well, who's going to facilitate it? Is it really going to be you? There's a, a term or a word <laughs> that I love to say. It's called particillation or to particillate. And my former boss at USAA and colleague while I was at IBM, Erin Halber, she invented this word. And it 
means that you can't participate and you can't facilitate often. That's the case, right? You can't be both fully present and then like watching the clock and moving people along for a variety of reasons, right? Because the human brain can't, you know, put itself in these two different roles at the same time. And because sometimes you need an unbiased third party to come in and help a group towards an outcome. And when the stakes are really high, an unbiased facilitator can be a wonderful, wonderful thing to invest in. <laughs> and I think that's why a lot of clients work with Forrester, right? We want expert opinion, but we also want someone to come in and facilitate us towards an outcome. Someone who isn't working with us, we can trust that. So lots of questions I would ask in order to get to the outcomes we want. Yeah, that actually resonates. I think uh, what clients expect when we're facilitating workshops is we know this workshop agenda will lead to, will likely lead to intended outcomes to continue on our way to mature a CX function, to build a roadmap, to build relationships with stakeholders. It requires repeating the workshop a few times, but I get the sense a lot of CX pros are doing this for the mm. first time, sometimes only doing it one time. You know, a CX vision workshop, this might be their first time, or trying to do a train the trainers on like a design thinking workshop. How do you kind of gain credibility to get people to come to your workshop? I would start with facilitating things that aren't workshops. <laughs> like, what's your reputation for facilitating the meetings that people come to that you <laughs> try to invite them to, right? Do you send off invites with no context? That's the worst. I hate that so much. You're going to take an hour of my time for what? <laughs> Sometimes becoming a credible facilitator requires you to improve your ability to communicate in writing and in person. And in the enterprise context, it usually starts with in writing. <laughs> How well can you communicate what it is you're hoping to accomplish? Are you talking to the right people even? So if you were to invite a bunch of executives to a meeting because you're the newly appointed CX director and you're just like hot to trot and you're like, we're going to get some stuff done, that's never going to work. Give me a break. Becoming a good facilitator, again, communication and also your ability to build relationships, which sometimes takes time, right? If you are wanting to be a facilitator internally, you have to prove that you're capable of that communication, the meetings that you try to hold today. How well do you define the inputs and outputs in these small conversations? How are you able to piece together things so that people can see the whole? A good facilitator is a systems thinker. And if you don't know a lot about systems thinking, I would encourage you to dig in and read up. There's one particular concept called parts and holes, which is often like the summation of systems thinking. So what is the whole of what we need to do? Establish a CX function, or I like to say CX competency. I prefer to think about organizations growing that skill as an organization, not just growing a team. So if this is what we want to happen, then a workshop is a drop in that bucket. It's a part or a stop on a path that's much grander. So can you see the whole and then design the parts to make up the whole? And being able to communicate that vision, that takes some facilitation, that takes some time, that takes some relationship building. So if you're an internal facilitator, I would encourage you to think about it as a long game, <laughs> marathon, not a sprint. Don't just jump in there and like kill it first day. It takes a little bit of time. I think there's, there's a definite angle there that I, I guess I'd thought about, but I hadn't really articulated in the way you have done, which is if, you, if you're associated or if you're attached to the outcome of the workshop, actually, sometimes you might need the courage to step back and say, I want to be part of this. I don't want to be the timekeeper and the note taker. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get somebody else to facilitate my workshop because I want the outcome of improving CX or justifying a new project or whatever. Mm -hmm. That feels like a hard thing for some people to admit to because you might be awesome at facilitating but you're just not the right person for this job absolutely 
So whenever I was designing our industry hire boot camp at IBM, I wanted to scale the ability to facilitate more of these sessions so that I didn't have to be in every single one of them. So I built a system of having people attend this workshop and then embed within a team during the workshop and then co-facilitate until they were comfortable leading all on their own. I would allow them to lead different methods. That requires like you as that lead facilitator to step back and allow other people to step in and learn and to trust that sometimes the learning is in the doing. I think, uh, Angelina, you know very well of 70% of learning is on the job, right? And facilitation is no different. So yes, add a little humility to allow someone else to step in and facilitate when you know that you can do it really well. That's hard. So what can you do to make it more successful or to equip someone else that you know needs to be in charge so that you can actually participate? Be a part of the planning. Walk through the methods that you'd like to use ahead of time. Know what's happening. And then since you are embedded in one of those teams in that workshop, you can co-facilitate. So what does it mean to be a facilitator when you're on the team? I think that's an interesting question. A lot of that has to do with being a person who can create psychological safety with the rest of the team, who can gracefully transition conversations, sometimes away from people who are hogging up all of the air by saying things like, that's really interesting, Martin. (laughs) I wonder what, you know, Cheryl thinks about that. Are you hearing the same thing, Christina, whenever you hear Martin summarize things that way? Does that make sense to you too? You can facilitate as a teammate by using this kind of inclusive language and um, being a facilitator of conversations. We've probably all been to like a good dinner party or out with friends. And there's always that one friend who is doing the job of making everybody comfortable in a way that doesn't feel weird, right? Everybody feels included. And when you meet those people, they're probably natural facilitators because they have the ability to watch the room, to see how everybody's interacting, to make sure there's equal airtime for everybody. And I think that's what I love about facilitation is that you get to democratize ideas, concepts, conversations through a variety of different methodologies. So letting other people in to learn that skill, even if you're really good at it, I almost think about it as like our civic duty. Oh my gosh, it makes the world such a better place if we want to get really crazy. What if we were all facilitators? Yeah, I like that um, openness. No one likes to hog the facilitation mantle. It's not a good look going back to be incredible. but. Another thing, so you've touched on sort of the the exposure and the role piece. There's another piece that makes a workshop a workshop. And because you floated your resume to us, and I have an analyst brain, I'm thinking IBM, there's a lot of ar- public-facing artifacts around design thinking. Um, USA, at one point, I think they were like training everyone in design thinking and printing it out and putting out badges. In both those cases, there's artifacts present. Is that mm-hmm. a defining characteristic of workshops as well? I think so. Um, In a workshop, if we're just having a conversation, it's just another meeting, right? If we aren't making something, then what is the real output? Bad meetings always are conversations with no physical activity, right? And at a minimum, you want some note taking. But if we're just talking, we tend to talk in circles. So if we're trying to progress people towards an idea, the creation of artifacts like a journey map or a service blueprint, even empathy maps are kind of a basic go-to in a standard design thinking workshop. But there are other methods like questions and assumptions or just this divergence and convergence we can use to get people to move towards an idea of voting, prioritization. All of these things should be physical so that people can see the conversation. Also, whenever you're making an artifact, you can create space where nobody says anything and people just have to contribute. 
And for those people who are more quiet or more thoughtful or need the quiet in order to think, creating space in a workshop for people to contribute to the creation of an artifact, and then, you know, getting to a place where you can either put things in the clusters or give things themes. Like there's a place to talk in a workshop and there's a place to be silent so that you can democratize the contribution. So yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Depending on the problem you're trying to solve, we can design a method to get you there that would produce an artifact, or we can use one that's already readily available. I mean, facilitation has been around for a minute. There's a ton of like free methods out there. I was just sharing one with a, a friend this morning so they could just take it and run. But yes, we need to have some sort of output through the creation of artifacts because the creation of an artifact facilitates a lot of good stuff. Like I was saying, divergence, convergence, voting, prioritization, and the democratization of thought so that we can synthesize that information as a team. And also an artifact, think about it as like your co-facilitator. Okay, we're going to do this thing, team. We're going to take it in steps you know, we're going to walk through it. And at the end, you have this output that is basically like a historical record of the conversation your team had. So yes, you should be producing artifacts and they go by lots of different names, depending on the problem you're trying to solve. I think I really like that tangibility aspect. So uh, the word workshop is loaded in itself. So my, my dad was an engineer mm. and in his later years, he was a teacher. He taught woodwork, he taught metalwork. And his version of a workshop was somewhere where you had a vice and some files and you'd make something. Mm-hmm. And if I'd ever said to him, I'm going to run a workshop on customer journey mapping, he'd have slapped me sideways <laughs> and told me to go and get another job. But I think that concept of like, we're going we're gonna to create something. That's what differentiates it from a meeting where we're just going to talk about something thing I think really resonates with me but it's it's a step as well though isn't it I think we're using this as part of telling an ongoing story moving people's minds would you agree with that yes 100 um again progressing towards an outcome a workshop is a step in the journey towards something larger and so people knowing that they're going to be able to contribute to an eventual outcome by creating micro outcomes I guess you could say <laughs> Every problem that we solve is a step. It requires a, something that comes before it, right? We can't just say it's problem solved. We have to do these things that increase the fidelity of our understanding of a problem and the eventual solution, which is at the heart of facilitation, design thinking, as it were, right? How well do we understand something? What do we need to collect in terms of data conversations so that we can then define the problem we want to solve? And only then can we go, I think we could have some pretty good ideas about how to solve this problem. And a workshop is about creating that pool of understanding, that shared understanding of a problem. So most good workshops start with some sort of data input so that you can create appropriate potential solutions that you can eventually evaluate, prioritize, and then you build something, right? It could be a prototype. It could be something coded, even if you're in a digital space, that customers can fiddle with it. But that progress, that is what we want a journey to be. It's a step in a larger story. It's a part of a whole. And when people can say, hey, we were able to progress, then I think usually your workshop was a win. And people will want to do more of them, right? Because it was an intensive way to work and they actually got something out of it. Namely, clarity. Like that's the best and biggest gift of a workshop is clarity so that you can keep progressing. Okay, AJ, we've planned the workshop. We had great engagement. We've got all of these artifacts coming out of it. Everyone feels like they are bought in. They were productive. What happens after? Aside from having to make sure you don't lose a single post-it, 
that is falling on the floor. Nothing. <laughs> That's what happens after a workshop. Nothing. <laughs> Prove us wrong, AJ. <laughs> so before the workshop even started, I would have made sure that not only is there a facilitator, but if that facilitator is not also going to be your documentarian, then I would have appointed a documentarian. And it, I would say almost always that person should not be the facilitator, right? That's a lot of work, especially if you're in a workshop that is multiple days or has a ton of artifacts, you need to give that responsibility to someone else. And in fact, that is only to your benefit. If you make the people in the workshop become responsible for documenting the outcomes, it will, you know, it's kind of like uh, as a kid, if you had to pay for your own toys, you kind of treated them better. <laughs> so I don't think a workshop is any different. So before the workshop or maybe in the workshop, if it comes to that, I appoint documentarians to carry the work forward. I've done a, a few things to make that easier for them. Sometimes I will create a deck, either PowerPoint, Keynote, depending on where you're working. And I will say, these are all the activities. This is like a skeleton deck with the title slides that say empathy map or whatever activities you have. And then each of the teams, if there's multiple teams, make sure you're taking photos of all your artifacts and plugging them into the deck. Because sometimes I'll conclude a workshop with an executive presentation. This is what we learned during the workshop. Play it back. That's another level of getting engagement, honestly, is to promise that we're going to be able to share our output, what we learned at the end of the workshop, invite the executives who were the sponsors of it. So you want to be able to document everything that happened. And that documentation is going to allow you to then say, we did some work and there should be from, you know, this time going forward, maybe two weeks from now, what kinds of specific goals were we planning to work towards in the workshop? We can say, here's the timeline for that. We can agree upon that as a team, depending on the outcome. But even facilitating what comes next after the workshop, I like that to be like the final method. So is there kind of a racy activity? Are we going to do questions and assumptions so that we can kind of zero in on what we need to explore post-workshop? Again, because we don't really get work work done in a workshop, we kind of set ourselves up to knock things down later. So assigning responsibilities to people that should be carrying that work forward either before the workshop, if it's known. Or during the workshop, we decide who's the most relevant person to carry that work forward. But it should be your final kind of closing work is to make sure that you can carry it forward. So include that as a part of your workshop. I'm glad you asked. And there are methods to facilitate that kind of stuff. But you'll, you can plan for that in the course of your work and leave time for it. And then even after we've done all that, I would never end a workshop with, okay, great, see you later. <laughs> Include a little bit more of a buffer. So there's almost a bit of a retro with whomever is supporting that workshop. Usually it's some form of a leader who can either, they either participate or they come in and they have a closing conversation with us about where the work is going to go next. You want people to feel excited leaving your workshop, not exhausted. So that's a part of the overall design is to get people to a point where they're feeling excited about what's going to come next, like they were accomplished, like there's clarity about what comes next. And these things can be documented through artifacts for sure. When we, we facilitate workshops for clients, we're generally going to ask at the end, give us some feedback. How did it go? Was it good? Was it bad? Give us a score. Do you see people doing that internally? You know, rate my workshop. Would you come again? Yes. And I, I had multiple touch points for feedback whenever I was facilitating workshops in other locations, but even with clients ending the workshop day with a like, wish, wonder, <laughs> what did you really like about this experience? Group conversation. What do you wish was a little different? What do you wish you had more of? What do you wish would happen after this workshop? Open conversation. What do you wonder about when it, you think about the time we've spent together? 
And a lot of good stuff comes out of that. I'll do that as a facilitated conversation. And then during the course of the workshop, I'll have a feedback grid that I keep posted at the front of the room or wherever there's space that just is a two by two grid for ideas, for questions, for changes that should be made. And that gives people a place to silently contribute, anonymously contribute. We shouldn't be afraid of anonymity because sometimes people need that in order to be honest. But those are two things I do in the workshop. And then even as a follow-up, you can send a, a survey or whatever, but you can't just depend on that. People don't fill out surveys. <laughs> even if they had a great time, they're not going to do that. So I try to allow for those two forms of feedback during the workshop. And then if you are going to do a survey, say, hey, this is a part of the deal of you getting to come to this is that we need to understand how it went. So let us know, especially if you're going to be doing a workshop that's educational and ongoing. You want to be able to refine that, right? So I feel like we've done 25 minutes probably on this topic. We could keep going all day. I feel like we might be getting you back to deep dive into some other topics like how to deal with difficult attendees or how to keep time. Or I, I can already think of like 20 other questions. So oh, ask. good. <laughs> so stay tuned. We'll be back. If you like, as, as listeners, if you like the more hands-on, like practical type stuff, let us know. We can do more of this kind of stuff. I'm going to say thank you to Angelina. Thanks. And thank you, AJ. Of course. Had a great time. And thank you to producers Ellie and Julia, without whom none of this would happen. If you want to get in touch, email us at cxcast at forester.com. As always, you can find us at forester.com or on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to like and subscribe and tune in next time for more CX Insights.